Thank you for listening to this programme from the Forever Manchester Radio and Podcast Network. Forever Manchester is a charity that raises money to fund and support community activity across Greater Manchester. Check out forevermanchester.com to find out more. With me now is Dave Haslam, Manchester DJ, our author, host, broadcaster and all sorts of things. Now you must have seen literally thousands of bands over the years. Mm-hmm. Probably. <laughs> you, you probably won't be able to answer this, I don't even know why I'm asking it as a question. Who do you reckon is the best unsigned band you've ever seen? Oh, the be- oh I don't know about best unsigned. Or, you know, those yeah. that, the, if, if I remember the dominoes had gone the other way, it'd have been a big a big yeah. different story for them. Yeah. I mean there was a band in Manchester in the in the mid late eighties called King of the Slums right. who uh, I really liked and I got involved putting out records for them I was that into them and they kind of got a bit blown away because in, in kind of 88, 89 the whole indie scene changed when, when house music came along and ecstasy and everything like that and they got a little bit sidelined by that but they were a great band and some really good YouTube footage of, of King of the Slums playing in this very building in the boardwalk right. uh, that was recorded by uh, the BBC and it's great it's kind of very scrat- scratchy violin and and the guy, and the the guy Charlie, the singer was was hilarious. And everywhere they went, they took an Alsatian dog with them, which um, <laughs> which used to really wind me up. We brought, like our, brought our own security. Yeah, their own security. <laughs> and we had a journalist. In fact, a journalist eventually from Melody Maker came up to to interview them, and he was really freaked out by this Alsatian dog just staring staring at him for an hour. Love it. How did it all lead into public? Where did when did you decide to write start writing books? When did you did you wake up one morning and go, you know what, I need to capture this? I've well, been keeping diaries. Well, yeah, I think what happened was that I um, I'd, I'd done bits of journalism, but the DJing really took over at the le- end of the eighties and into the nineties, and I was doing two nights a week, I you know at the Hacienda and then at the Boardwalk, and so I was kind of concentrating on that, and then um, and also my son was born in nineteen eighty eight, so I had like lots of stuff to do with him, but then by the end of the nineties, I had a little bit more space in my life and I realised that actually if I organised myself a little bit better then I could do my DJing at the weekend I can do all my parenting stuff I got all that under control but it gave me quite a few hours of the, each day to do something for myself and so I started writing books because um, I'd not really enjoyed being a freelance writer like I say I was I think when you're up in Manchester, at that point, you're at a bit of a disadvantage getting any access to any of the good stories. Right. Um, so I kind of thought, right, I'll just write a book. I won't, uh, you know, and I'll see where it goes. And so I, that's how I started writing. And, I, you know, and it kind of went back to, you know, where we started talking about um, being a student who, you know, liked reading books and studied English. You know, there was always that part of me which kind of makes it a little bit odd because obviously people's perception of a DJ is that you're a bit of a kind of headless, hedonistic type person, you know. But, you know, uh, DJs have have all kinds of personalities, you know, and there's like extroverts, introverts, readers, non-readers, and I happen to just be kind of like, yeah, into reading and writing. And the book stuff really took off because uh, I think it's because, you know, I write about things that I'm passionate about you know, in the same way as when I did a fanzine. And I think if what you do is something you're passionate about, people pick up on that. You know, you can yeah. sometimes read, if you read a book or you hear someone talking about something or you see a band, people aren't stupid. They'll, they'll know if that if, if they're just going through the motions. But if you've got passion, it gets you a long way. And, and writing books is the same. You moved on from that and you started doing research on people, nailing them down and then hiring venues and interviewing them in front of live audiences. 
<laughs> well, this is something, yeah, it, it, it kind of slightly goes back to that period in the mid 80s when I heard a band, liked them, and thought they need a gig in Manchester. It kind of, you know, go forward to me now. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit estranged from the young bands. You know, eventually that becomes a younger scene. But there's still writers, musicians, actors that I'm aware of. And I think, wouldn't it be great to create an event for them, around them? And, you know, I'd always enjoyed interviewing people. So, yeah, I had this idea. I called it Close Up, where I'd invite somebody like John Lydon from the Sex Pistols, David Byrne, Nara Rogers, Nana Cherry, uh, writers, Raymond Carver, um, Jonathan Franzen, uh, not Carver, sorry, Jonathan Franzen, a few others, invite them to come up to Manchester and, like you say, hire, hire a, a venue and and just have a, an opportunity to sit down and talk to these people. It was, for me, in fact, you know, p- creative, inspiring people, they very seldom let me down. If When I meet them, you know, they always say, don't meet your heroes. But when I meet people who've inspired me, you know, 99 times out of 100, I leave that encounter even more inspired. Yeah, so putting on putting on these events, it gives me the kind, same kind of thrill, you know, and it sounds very, I don't know if it sounds odd, but it's honest. When I interviewed Niall Rogers from Chic uh, in, about four or five years ago in front of an audience, and, and he was such a great guy, and we got on well, and he gave me a lot of stuff. We talked for like, we had a break, but we talked for an hour and a half. At some points he got his guitar out and talked about how he helped write Let's Dance for David Bowie and Madonna and working with Diana Ross and Sheik and Sister Sledge. And an hour and a half in his company, in front of an audience, with all that kind of the love that was in the room mm-hmm. and how inspiring he was, that was as much of a buzz as DJing at Spike Island was yeah. in 1990 or being at the Hacienda. For me, at that point, it was exactly what I wanted to do. And I absolutely, I just, I just loved it, and and so I've, I've kind of, I just still do that, you know, and I, I, you know, I have several interviews in, in, in the diary in the future. I was going to ask a question. I'm not sure you can answer it. Do your guests enjoy it? Um, oh, the get, yeah, the, <laughs> I think the guests enjoy it. Um, I think there's been one or two who uh, have been. Sometimes you see if someone's got a book out, say, uh, then you will actually be approached oh yeah you know someone will phone me up I hear you do these things it would be great if our author could be you know featured and it might be someone that I like and and so I do get it all organised and an audience come in but occasionally that person isn't doesn't really want to be involved but my you know and is a little bit um, doesn't give me anything you know it's a bit kind of quiet and it's become hard work then very hard work (laughs) but my thing is is my thing is at least they're revealing something about themselves you know I think if an audience see somebody you know whether it's Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth whoever it is if they're in a room with them for an hour or so and it's not on TV, it's not on YouTube, it's real. And they're there and they can see their body language and how they interact with me and how they interact during the questions from the audience. Then that guest will reveal something mm-hmm. about themselves. They might reveal that they're very wary or that they're a bit boring <laughs> or they don't really want to be there. Or they might be very funny, they might be warmer than you imagine. They might, you know, they might, like Nile Rogers, they might really give give you everything. Um, but at least they're revealing something. And that's kind of my joy. So sometimes I'm sat there and the interviewee is just being hard work. And I'm thinking, it doesn't matter because the audience will make up their own mind. And, you know, and, and also I don't expect everyone to be a bundle of fun. 
You know, some people aren't comfortable in front of an audience. Some I was people, say, yeah. you know, even musicians who are on stage with a guitar and who've been playing and performing for 20, 30 years actually can be quite uncomfortable in that situation being not interrogated exactly but questioned by someone like me who wants to maybe go a bit deeper than what's on Wikipedia. And so, you know, I, I, I don't expect them to be like my best mate. I just see what happens. That moment evolves and the audience get to witness whatever happens. Should we talk about the Hacienda? Yeah, let's talk about the Hacienda. What's your favourite Hacienda? Have you got a favourite Hacienda memory? Or is it is it is it, is it a chapter? <laughs> well, it's a few chapters <laughs> in my book. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, my memories of it. It does seem a long time ago. I mean, you know, I, I DJed on what turned out to be the last ever night. So, you know, I was there for so long involved. And um, I think probably the best moments were just before it got big. Because if you imagine something like the Hacienda, we, it, we were building it over a period of several years before it hit the headlines. And we were underground for, you know, we were busy, people mm. were coming, mm. but there was no profile really, you know, no profile, and even locally particularly. Um, and But once it had got big, obviously that changes stuff. You get more pressure on the door from kind of, you know, uh, gangsters and drug dealers and 'er ne'er-do-wells generally. You get more people who would kind of just have a slightly touristic attitude to things and will just kind of turn up and watch the phenomenon rather than just, like, getting involved. And so I kind of became aware at the end of 1990 that we'd kind of lost some of the spontaneity that we probably had in 1987, 88. So I think probably that early time was my favourite. And then really late on, when actually a lot of people had moved on from the Hacienda and, and attention was being given to clubs like Cream in Liverpool, Ministry of Sound in London, and the whole Ibiza thing, which is all fair enough. But it kind of meant that the Hacienda was able to slightly go back to just doing its own thing. Um, and so that, it was you know, the, the last couple of years were pretty good. But, I mean, I met all, you know, I met so many friends there. Um, I had so many great experiences. It was so, you know, and just to be somewhere where, you know, uh, as I say, you know, I was a massive Joy Division fan, then a New Order fan. And then, you know, even in 1986, I was l- loving the fact that I was DJing for 40 quid a week in this venue owned by New Order. Mm-hmm. And I remember one, once turning up, one week and there was a little brown mailer envelope 12 inch mailer envelope and inside was a white label copy of the new new order single and and i was told right you've got this before anyone else you know you don't have to play it if you want to play it bizarre love triangle and the idea that you've got that you were there right at the beginning of of the story of, of that kind of song and that you were in that in the middle you weren't like you know, you weren't the puppet master. You were just part of the collective history and the collective story. It's just is phenomenal. Couple of questions to finish off. The Manchester scene um, and and obviously the indie movement that followed on yeah. from from that that grew from that versus today. Historically, music has always had different scenes that have become popular. Not necessarily commercially popular, but popular. Yeah. Music today in 2018. Those little vibey scenes don't appear to be around anymore well i don't know i might disagree with you on that one Good. i mean i in in my book i talk about making a very conscious effort uh starting about 10 years ago to um not assume that everything good had already happened and that there wasn't activity out there 
in Manchester or anywhere else. And so that was another reason why, I, you, uh, you know, I still go out to lots of venues. I saw a band called Everything Everything playing at the Roadhouse in front of, prob- you know, when I say 10, that's probably an exaggeration, probably eight people. And that was probably more than 10 years ago yeah. now. And, you know, since then they've had albums out. They've filled the Apollo. They now fill the Apollo. Mm. But all that started very small in a small venue. And I just think that's what happens. And I think that the things are always underground in Manchester. And it, it's the kind of place where people will expect to try new things. And I think I, I think we have, uh, yeah, a new generation. There's all sorts of great little venues, you know. Um, Soup Kitchen's a great venue. Uh, Gorilla, uh, the White Hotel, which is kind of more Salford way. All those places, Islington Mill, you know, none of those venues are like the big flagship venue like the Hacienda was, but um, all of those venues attract creative people and do creative things, and you know, my my kids are now 30 and 21 and they go out all the time, and some of the stuff they sit down and make me listen to is brilliant, right. and I you know, and or they send me the little link or they tell me this and they tell me that and, you know, and I'm insanely jealous you know, m- my son will spend a whole weekend staying up the whole time in various different underground little clubs in Manchester. And I'd, I'll see it'll be a wreck on a Sunday night. Uh, he's always fine for work on a Monday, but he's a wreck on a Sunday night. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, I, I, you know, and so how can I wave a finger at him and say, oh, it was better back then? Because he's absolutely, he's absolutely living it, him and his generation. Yeah, and it's actually an, it's an unfair thing to say to anybody, isn't it? Really, well, it they, is. They yeah, can't, they can't change that, can they? No, yeah, and yeah. also because you know, I, I do remember that you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, would be the sixties generation who grew up with the Beatles and then Carnaby Street and Woodstock and and, that, and you know, and also all the political stuff in the sixties. I can remember them having that attitude towards my generation. You know, that you'll never feel that buzz, you'll never create that culture. You know, you you're forever in our. Show and that's not how it turned out no and so I'm, I'm very aware that I, I, I you know that I, I need to avoid being like one of those you know nostalgist type people okay and finally what's Dave Haslam up to now and what's the future looking like well I've got my I've got yeah so I've got my new book which I'm not here to plug as we know I'm just here for a general chat but my, my, my new book Sonic Youth slept on my floor uh, I've got 16 or 17 date book tour so I'm, I'm, you know, it's uh, Leeds, Liverpool, Paris. I've got a gig in Paris. I've got a couple of big plans in Manchester for things in October, which will be, you know, announced in due course. Still pulling all that together, and oh yeah, I've uh, I formed a band. Really? I know it's a bit late. Um, you formed a it's band. It's a duo. Brilliant. It's a duo, um, and um, we're supposed to be playing. We've got a gig in November in Italy. So. Our first gig will be um, in an old church in Italy. And so (laughs) that's kind of like the crazy next chapter, I guess. Is is it acoustic? Is it electronic? Well, maybe I'll I'll come back and... uh, We've recorded some stuff, yeah. 
it's um, we'll see how it goes. Now I've said it, I kind of feel like this has got to happen. At the back of my mind, I was still thinking, well, should I do this or should I not? But now I've told Forever Manchester that I've formed a band and we're playing live in November. It has to happen. Brilliant. Can I also just finally thank you for your support of Forever Manchester? Oh no, I, I mean it's a it's a great charity, and uh, no, I love I, I love the I love the team and you know being part of the community. Dave Haslam, thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Forever Manchester Meets, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and like and subscribe us with a nice five-star review. If you want to find out more about Forever Manchester and the work that we do in Greater Manchester, please check us out at forevermanchester.com or follow us on the usual social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Forever Manchester. Nice one. <laughs>